We've called deep down into the bullpen, uh, Barton uh, Kimbrough, your designated teachers out of town, and so they uh, called in uh, the old reliever, and uh, so it's uh, always my privilege to come in and sub in for our regular teaching team, and thank you for having me. Uh, just so glad that you're here, and I want to invite you, if you'll take your Bibles, uh, if you don't have a Bible, your smartphone, and grab something where you can kind of follow the Scripture along. Uh, I have it uh, sort of listed in your notes so you can kind of follow each little part. Uh, I love uh, what uh, Pastor Sandy has done here uh, through the years of just uh, not what does the preacher say, not what does John Calvin or Martin Luther say, but what does the Bible say? And under each point in italics, you've got the scripture uh, uh, that will give you uh, the, the, the biblical underpinning of the point we're making. Well, today I want to talk to you from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Uh, The book of Hebrews is just a great book that just points and and paints for us uh, the beautiful supremacy of Jesus Christ and and who He is and and the work that He's done. And and the design of this book is to encourage, encourage uh, Hebrew Christians, if you will, Messianic Jews who are being pressed by a hostile world to to turn away from Christ. They're really evaluated, is it really worthwhile following Jesus Christ? Does it really pay to walk with the Lord? Because, you know, always when I get confused about uh, what's going on with these people, uh, the place I go to in the book of Hebrews is to remember Uh, what they're dealing with is is Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 34. Let me just read that to you now. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, after you'd come to faith, after the, uh, the Spirit of God had illumined your heart to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. And he goes on to talk about uh, don't throw away your confidence. You have a great reward, uh, for you have need of endurance. And today, as we, uh, as we come to God's Word, we have that same need. Uh, some of us have been walking with Jesus for uh, just a short while. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for a lifetime. And one of the things that I'm discovering as a 55-year-old man, as you get older, fear can drive your decisions more than ever. And today in Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 18... I want you to see what uh, the writer to the, to the Hebrews is doing. He's, he's coming to bring courage to the fearful. Courage to the fearful and help to the tempted. And uh, this morning I, I, uh, I just want to read the passage and then we'll just jump in because there's a particular fear that he's addressing. Our, our, one of our ultimate fears. But let's look now in uh, verses 14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus Christ, likewise partook of the same things, 
that through death he might destroy or render powerless the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through their fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, to lifelong bondage. For surely it is not angels that he helps, literally grabs by the hand, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able, here comes another word again, to help those who are being tempted. Let me pray for us. God, our Heavenly Father, in the midst of this uh, quiet morning, we pray that in the stillness that you will open our ears to hear the beautiful melody of the gospel of grace and that you would quiet and still our fearful hearts. And And for those of us who are in a time of testing, Uh, a time of uh, temptation, even facing uh, the seductions of this world, the siren songs of this world that would lure us away from a simple and pure and undistracted devotion to Jesus. Would you come to our aid, Lord Jesus? For you are our light and our salvation. And so, Lord, come now and speak to us your eternal word that doesn't change, and give us all gathered here in your presence. Grace to respond as we ought. Give us faith and give us understanding. But most of all, give us obedient hearts who delight to do what you command. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the fear of death had its icy fingers around a trembling, grieving heart of a young student. This young student was standing in the back of his childhood church carrying the casket of one of his childhood friends, his next-door neighbor who had died in a car crash due to the influence of drugs. The song that was playing was a, uh, if you've heard of an old guy by the name of Bill Gaither, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, I can face uncertain days because he lives. But the fear wasn't gone. And through blinding tears, this boy carried this casket in and out of that church. That young man was me. And it was one of the things that God began to use to get my attention. Us young men oftentimes think that we have Teflon, you know, we're indestructible and uh, 
immune from the harsh realities of death in this world. And that was my first encounter as a 20-year-old college student carrying the casket of my good friend Henry Bridger uh, into our childhood church where we sang in the youth choir, where we did all these things together. And friends, today I'm, I'm here to just remind you that there was another group of people. If you have ever feared death, you're in good company. There's another struggling little band of people, the first century church. They're beginning to sail into the bloody seas of persecution. Their property is being confiscated. Some are being thrown into prison. Some are going to be thrown into the lions in the Colosseum. And they're beginning to evaluate, where is this Jesus? Does it really pay to follow him, and they're being tempted to turn away, to turn back, if you will, one writer says, to the cradle of Judaism, to avoid the cost of following Jesus. And today, one of the calls that uh, I know the Lord Jesus has been pressing upon me in, in, in recent times is just his simple reminder, Dick, if any man would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, And follow me. And if we're going to follow Jesus, our feet are going to be pierced just like his were. And uh, we're beginning to see in our day that the the winds are changing. They're becoming contrary uh, to the church and to the faith in which we stand. And so it's really important for us to to see today that uh, the message that the writer of the Hebrews is trying to communicate to us here is that Jesus Christ is, first of all, he's superior to all the angels. Why? Hebrews chapter 1. He is fully God. He is a radiance of God's glory. By him, he holds all things together by the word of his power. He is fully God. Hebrews chapter 1. And now in Hebrews chapter 2, you've been studying that Jesus Christ is a pioneer, the author of our faith. He is fully man. And today, if you've been struggling with temptation, if you have, uh, if you said, man, if you knew what I've been dealing with lately of, of how I've fallen and skipped my spiritual knees, you wouldn't want me here in the fellowship hall. And you need to take heed to the passage that comes right before ours this morning. Jesus Christ comes just like we did a moment ago when God's people gather together and they begin to worship. Who is the lead worshiper? Who is the lead uh, musician, if you will? Who is the music minister of his church? It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who comes among us to proclaim the name of his Father. And he says in Hebrews 2, 11 and 12, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. You need to personalize it. Marshall, I am not ashamed to call you my brother. Tim, I am not ashamed to call you my brother. David, I'm not ashamed to call you my brother. Because if you're like me, we all deal with shame and guilt. The devil comes. We're going to talk about him here in a minute. He's the accuser of the brethren. That's what his name means, the accuser. And we have, to, we have to remind ourselves of what's true of us from Scripture. 
Jesus Christ says, he's not ashamed of me. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I'm a blood-bought son of the living God. And it emboldens us, and we can fight off his accusations. Well, one of the things that's going on here is that um, we begin to see the writer of the Hebrews pressing something. Jesus Christ shares fully our humanity. And, and for two specific purposes, to deliver us from the tyranny of the devil. He wants to deliver us from the tyranny of the devil, and he wants to help us against the devil's tactics. And so, first of all, in verses 14 and 15, Jesus shares our humanity to liberate us from the devil's tyranny. And so, first of all, I want you to see something right out of the chute in verse 14 Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So first off, you know, one of the things we need to see from the passage is the absolute necessity. It was absolutely indispensable that Jesus Christ had to become a man. We had to have a human savior. This is obvious God cannot die. We humans can die. And and one of the things I would like for you to see as well, not only the necessity, one little added point here is the the peculiarity of Jesus' incarnation, of him becoming man. Simply put, you and I didn't have a choice to become men. Uh, uh, Our mom, uh, we were the twinkle in her eye and... uh, and uh, your mom and dad got together and, and, and you came. You didn't have a choice, but Jesus Christ voluntarily took on flesh. He became fully man. And uh, one of the things the church fathers, as they think about this mystery of the incarnation of how can God, a holy God, become man? And this is what they were, they were, their minds were boggled trying to get around, get, get their minds around this truth. He said, Jesus Christ became what he was not without ceasing to be who he was so that he could make you to be what you were not and to be like him. Well, one of the things I would just want to encourage you with right here, what just a, okay, what difference does this make in my life? Jesus Christ humbled himself. He was born of a virgin. He was born into into a, a very poor family. He suffered all the indignities of his passion, of his suffering, beard being pulled out, the crown of thorns on his head, the piercings in his side, in his hands, in his feet. Uh, He suffered all of that. It's called his humiliation. But I I want you just to, I think for me, the challenge of this, the import of this is to awaken, awaken in your heart and mind wonder and adoration. And and let me give it to you, uh, when my heart grows cold and my eyes get kind of crusty and I just sort of yawn through these things, I often go to the hymns of Charles Wesley. And this would be a a hymn that you may not have heard of. Uh, I'll always bring it up to our congregation here at Second during Advent as we prepare for uh, the birth of Christ at Christmas. 
gaze, gaze, a concentrated, focused attention, gaze on that helpless object of endless adoration, those infant baby hands shall burst our bands. Those infant hands shall strangle the crooked serpent. Those infant hands shall open set the heavenly gate to every true believer. Jesus Christ had to become fully man in order to bear the curse of sin, in order to die in our place. So first of all, the absolute necessity of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, of of Him becoming man. May it it sort of open your eyes to wonder and stand amazed that God who would so condescend to you to enter into our condition. And um, I'm thinking uh, right now of one of the old spirituals. I want Jesus to walk with me. In my trials, Lord, I want Jesus to walk with me. In my troubles, Lord, in my sorrows, Lord, I want Jesus to walk with me. And the beautiful thing of the incarnation is that he walks with you. Anything that you've ever experienced, any suffering, any sorrows, the pain, the tears, the heartache, Jesus has experienced it. He is a sympathizing Savior. Now, the second point here is the purpose. The purpose of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The design of of the incarnation. And it's very simply put in verse 14. It says, He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death. That through death. Death. Now, you, 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 you spoke about this last week, that uh, Jesus Christ had to become man in order to taste death. If you look back up into verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So... Uh, Jesus Christ, the purpose of his incarnation was the crucifixion. It was not the frustration of God's plan, the cross. The cross of Jesus was the culmination and the fulfillment of Jesus' life. In fact, he would always say in the book of John, my hour, my hour has not yet come. And because Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life that you could never live, and he has died a sacrificial death, For you, death has died. And there's a great book. It's kind of hard to understand. People have tried to simplify it and uh, abridge it. It's by a Puritan by the name of John Owen. It's called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Some of you, you've had loved ones that you've cared very dearly for. And you've had to usher them into eternity. My friends, as a pastor and having done this for a lot of years, 
I can tell you that being a believer in Jesus Christ makes all the difference in the world when it, com- when it comes to that moment of death. I remember the first time I had to walk with a young family, a 36-year-old husband of a 33-year-old wife dying of complications from breast cancer. Watching him lay in the hospital bed with his wife and usher her into eternity, knowing that he had to, at that point, raise two children by himself. My friends, this makes all the difference in the world. And we're going to see in a moment the outcome, <laughs> the outcome of, uh, of the incarnation and, and, and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The death of death and the death of Christ. The sting of death has been removed. So death is no longer a a curse that we have to bear. And one of the beautiful things of the gospel of hope of resurrection is that now what is for those who are outside of Christ, death is a terrifying reality. It is something to fear because it is a gateway into hell gateway of being cut off from the source of life and love forever and ever. But if you are in Christ, it is the gateway of glory. And Jesus Christ has transformed death into an enemy, from an enemy to a friend. But let us never make our our peace with death. Death is an enemy. This is what this passage is all about. Jesus Christ, our champion, is coming to defeat our two last enemies, the enemy of death and the enemy of the devil. Death, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26, is the last enemy and it will be destroyed. So friends, if you're in Christ today, I hope that you anchor your heart to the promise of Jesus in John 11, 25 and 26. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. If any man believes in me, even if he dies, yet shall he live. And any man who lives and believes in me shall never die. So uh, I've heard Sandy Wilson in this room say this story from Dwight L. Moody, the famous pastor of uh, the Moody Church in downtown Chicago. He told his congregation once, one day you will hear that your beloved pastor, probably didn't call himself beloved, (laughs) uh, is dead. That that, uh, D.L. Moody of uh, Northfield, Massachusetts has died. He said, do not believe it for a minute. He said, I will be more alive at that time than I have ever been in my life. For Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. If any man believes in him, even if he dies, yet shall he live. This is the hope of the gospel. So we've got the necessity of of the incarnation. The purpose of of Jesus' incarnation is to die and to bring many sons to glory. And uh, if, if you, uh, one of the things that I do, especially when I get discouraged, I, I grab hold of songs, of hymns, uh, just like we've sung just a moment ago. Uh, one of my favorite, more contemporary songs is How Deep the Father's Love for Us. How vast beyond all measure 
that he should give his only son to make, and I always personalize it, I don't, we don't do it in, in when we sing it corporately, to make this wretch, this wretch, his treasure. Jesus Christ is bringing you and me to glory. And one of the things that a passage like our passage this morning reminds us, as I want the crown, <laughs> I want the kingdom, I don't want the cross, I don't want the sufferings and the hardship, but there is uh, the cruciform pattern of, of being a Christian is the cross always comes before the crown. Sufferings always come before glory. But you can be assured, remember Hebrews 2 verse 10, he's bringing you. He is going to get you home to be with him in glory, to see the glory that he shared with his father before the worlds were made. And this is why we celebrate communion. Here at our church, we celebrate communion at least once every Lord's Day. And we do that because Jesus Christ said in Mark 14, in the, in the first Passover Seder, Peter, before the cock crows twice, you're going to deny that you know me three times. I've taken it into account. You, my redeemed people, you're going to fall. You're going to sin against me. But... Amen, I tell you the truth. I'm going to pick you up on the way to Galilee. And I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. I'm relentlessly committed to getting you home to be with me. I'm going to drink the fruit of the vine with you in the kingdom of God. You disciples that are fail, that are fickle, that are prone to, to not just face temptation, but to enter into temptation where the problem comes, I'm going to get you home. And this is what communion is all about. And this is why if, if uh, like a number of our elders, when I'm serving them communion, when we're distributing the elements, and I'm always, I think I'm uh, reacting to my childhood. I don't know about you, but uh, growing up in the heritage I grew up in, look at what your sins did to Jesus. Wipe that smile off of your face. And basically, calling God's people to own our share of the guilt of the cross. Yes, we need to own our share of the guilt of the cross. But it was not just our sin that held him there. It was the Father's love that held him there on that cross. Look at how much the Father loves you. Friends, rejoice and be glad. Get up on your tiptoe. Rejoice and be glad. Jesus Christ, his body broken for you. Jesus Christ, his blood. This is why he had to share the blood. The blood and the flesh, so that the blood could be spilled out and the flesh could be torn on that cross. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9.22 says, there is no forgiveness of sins. So now we come to sort of the import of this. What are the outcomes? What are the outcomes? Uh, what, what difference does the death of Jesus Christ make? And there are two things, and I want to just call, yourself, call your attention to two words. Destruction and to deliverance. First of all, the outcome of Jesus' death is to destroy, to destroy and conquer the devil. 
to destroy and conquer the devil. Look what verse 14 says, that Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So, friends, in our day and time, honestly, in our culture, we do not take the devil very seriously. You look out at um, a situation like Las Vegas, and how can uh, one man perpetrate such evil and the senseless taking of life? The devil entered Judas, Luke 22, verse 3, to betray the perfectly innocent Son of God. And my friends, I think one of the things that we have to do in our day and time is we need to take the devil a little bit more seriously. But my friends, when you ever find yourself, and only a couple times in my life have I found myself, especially when I'm traveling in other countries, in other developing countries, in the presence of palpable evil, can I tell you the, the two places I go in the Bible? 1 John 5, verse 4. Greater is he who is in you than is he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the spirit of the living God within you. And Re Revelation 12, 11. How did we overcome? How did the saints of God overcome the devil? by the word of their testimony, and by the power of the blood, by the power of the blood of the Lamb. And so if you ever find yourself in the, in the presence of palpable evil, and you sense it, you sense oppression around you, you claim the blood. You, uh, you appeal to the blood of Jesus Christ, for there's power, just like the old song we used to sing in my Baptist church, there's power in the blood. There's wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. And you claim that for, your, for yourself. Jesus Christ comes to destroy and conquer the devil. Now, it's important for us to realize what this doesn't mean. <laughs> because you look out and it seems like the devil's winning the day. That he's even winning the day in our, in our country. The destruction of of the devil does not refer to his ultimate eschatological destruction. Now we know from Revelation 20, we know as Martin Luther would tell us in his great Reformation hymn, we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this month, for lo, his doom is sure. What is his doom? He is going to be utterly and completely destroyed. He is going to be cast into the lake of fire. We know this from Revelation chapter 20. But here, this is not what the passage is talking about. It literally means to, for, the, for the destruction of the devil is to deprive him of his, of his power. Basically, to bind the strong man is another image that is used to render him powerless. So by Jesus Christ humbly submitting himself to death, he binds the devil and, and the devil's power to accuse us, to, to, uh, to condemn us to hell because we know that the wages of sin is death. And so basically the devil had, no longer has any ability to do you ultimate spiritual damage because you are a child of the living God. 
You are a blood-bought son of the living God. And the devil no longer has any power to do you ultimate harm. Now, the devil and his minions, he can incite someone to kill you like he's done throughout other places in the world. And there, there are plenty of martyrs for our faith. But uh, what does Jesus tell us? And what would he would tell us today? Do not fear. Do not fear those who can kill the body. But fear the one who can kill body and soul and cast into hell. So friends, the way that we conquer fear is the ultimate fear to have a reverential awe for the living God. And would you pray and ask the Lord to give you a growing awareness, I like that phrase, a reverential awe for God and for who He is. And uh, this will cast out other fears. Because one of the things you see in this passage now is that He comes to deal with sort of our ultimate fear, sort of the, if you will, the mega Fear, the great fear, and, and he's kind of arguing from the greater to the lesser. If Jesus Christ has so worked in redemptive history to conquer the ultimate fear, the fear of death that causes people to live in lifelong bondage to the devil, then he will, how will he not also address and give us faith and strength for the lesser fears of our lives? Well, one of the things I, I think is kind of important here is, is um, the second point here is just to, we've, we've talked about destruction. The devil has been rendered powerless. He now has no authority and no ability to do you ultimate spiritual harm. But now, in, in the destroying of the devil, we have something else in point number two, to uh, Jesus, the outcome of Jesus' death is to deliver us from the fear of death. And this is uh, verse 15. To deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. How is it today that when it, when it comes your time, when you are summoned, when it comes your time to pass from this life into eternity, how can you... How can you Embrace that summons with a serene mind and heart. And I'll tell you where I go. We do uh, quite a few funerals here. We have a lot of senior saints. And generally in those funerals, uh, there are a couple of passages that are always requested. One, you can imagine, what would be the most oft-requested passage to read at a funeral? I'm sorry? Okay, John 3.16. I mean, you can't get better than that. Absolutely. What else? Okay, 1 Corinthians 15 about the, the, the gospel hope of resurrection. What else? I'm sorry? Okay, we got Psalm 23. And I missed one back there. Yes, sir. John 14. Okay, so... The, the three most requested passages, Psalm 23, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We will fear no evil for the Lord is with us. Death is a shadow for a saint of God and shadows have never hurt anyone. Number two, John 14, 
I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you? Would I have not told you? But I'm going to prepare a place for you. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be troubled. Neither let it be fearful. The last one is Romans chapter 8. And I've told you once before, as I, I taught here once on Roman, Romans chapter 8, if I'm Tom Hanks and I'm the castaway, and I'm on the desert island or, 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 the, or, or the Pacific island all by myself, and I get to take one chapter of the Bible with me, I'm going to take Romans chapter 8. Why? Well, Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, the last two verses. I am convinced, I am persuaded that not even death itself will be able to cut me off from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. So death cannot cut you off from an experience of the love of God in Christ. And the moment that you die, I love talking with kids when maybe one of their grandparents have passed on and we come to the casket and they're asking questions. It's a teachable moment, a time when fear can grab hold of their heart. And I say, son, your granddaddy, the empty shell of your granddaddy's body right there, your granddaddy is not here. Let me tell you where he is. He placed his faith in Jesus Christ and the most clear statement of the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So when a believer dies, they pass from this life into a conscious presence of of the presence of the living God, and they're always with the Lord. So that's very, very important. Um, John Calvin says that God has taken death, which in in Satan's hands is a gateway into hell, and he has transformed it into a gateway into glory. I was thinking about this this, uh, this week and um, just thinking a lot of the reformers and people, men just like us, ordinary men like us that launched the Great Reformation. The fear of death can cause you to compromise your convictions. It did so for one of the great men of God in, in, in English Reformation history, Thomas Cramner. If you know Thomas Cramner, but he was the man who wrote the Book of Common Prayer. And if you've ever gone to a wedding, if, you've, if any of you were raised in a, an Episcopal church, you know the beauty of those prayers. This man walked with God. But he, he came to a point under the threat of death where he, he recanted his faith. And uh, Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, uh, was basically just exterminating the, the Protestants and he in a moment of weakness, in a moment of fear, recanted his faith. But as he came back to prison, he began to think through his convictions and what he had done, he recanted his recanting. And therefore that meant that he was to be burned at the stake. And what this man did as he prepared to face his his death is he put his hand, his right hand, that he had written his, his recanting, he put his right hand into the flames first. And my friends, one of the things I want to just say to you this morning, you and I, 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 I think often of uh, Vince Lombardi of the Green Bay Packers, fatigue. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. And Lord, you can, would you protect me? 
in a moment of weakness, in a moment of temptation, of turning away from you, of denying you, the Lord, who, who has loved me so. And Thomas Cramner was here today. He would tell you that it is worth every, every effort you make to follow Jesus Christ and to serve him faithfully in your life. Let's move to the last point here. Jesus shares our humanity not only to liberate us from the devil's tyranny, his bondage, but to, to help us against, if you will, the devil's tactics, to help us in temptation, to help us in temptation. This is really verses 16 uh, to 18, and there are a number of things to think about here, but um, let me uh, just comment just briefly on the word temptation. He says in verse 18, For because he himself, Jesus, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, this is an important word for you to know from the original uh, language of the New Testament. It, it is a word that uh, sort of has two sides. It's like a coin. On one side of this word, a, a periasmos is, an, is the word, it, it means testing. It means testing, a time of trial and, and affliction and hardship. And one of the things that's important to acknowledge is that God tests us. God leads us at times into a time of testing. You may be in a season right now where your faith is being tested just like these original uh, Hebrew Christians. That that. God tests us to, to, to refine our faith and to strengthen our capacity to trust Him. On the other side, on the other side of that coin is, uh, is a seduction to evil. This is the devil, is, is the tempter, and uh, he, he tempts us to turn away and to, uh, to abandon the Lord and to look to created things rather than our Creator for our satisfaction and delights in this world. And so it's real important to sort of see the distinction there. These people were being tested, but they were also being seduced, seduced away by the tempter, by the serpent, from a simple and pure devotion to Jesus, just like we are, just like we are today. And so first of all, I want you to see, just as we walk through this passage, verses 16, who are the recipients? Who are the recipients of, of the Lord's help? Look with me in verse uh, 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So one of the things that's important to remember is what is the author of the Hebrews Hebrews doing right now. He's helping to prove that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. He took on flesh in order to help, in order to grab by the hand the descendants of Abraham. And today, if you have come to a place of embracing Jesus Christ and placing your faith in Him and resting and depending upon Him alone for your salvation, you are a son of Abraham. You're part of this great family. Uh, when, when God told Abraham, hey, I'm going to bless you, and through you all the families of the earth are going to be blessed, your descendants are going to be greater than the stars in the heavens. You're one of those stars. You're one of those descendants. You know, the, the old song, Father Abraham had many sons, 
Many sons had father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's praise the Lord. You're one of the descendants of Abraham. You're part of that wonderful family of God. Now, one of the things I want you to see this morning, and this is something new for me as I was studying this passage, is um, sometimes the words in English, they kind of blend together. So if you will, look with me back into verse 16. Twice he says, he helps. He doesn't help the angels, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And then if you um, go down to verse 18, he says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, it seems like, okay, aren't these the same words? Actually, they're not. These are two different words. And the first word is um, basically a word that means to catch, to lay hold of, of another, to rescue them from great peril and harm. It means to seize with the hand. Now, some of you know, and, and you, some of you will have to extend grace to me, that I, I used to live for 10 years in the town of Tuscaloosa, Alabama. They have a temple there. It's called Bryant-Denny Stadium. And uh, one of my first times there uh, as, a, as a young pastor serving Trinity Presbyterian Church there, it was the old Miss Alabama game. And uh, there's this mumble-jumble uh, as they uh, begin to sort of highlight all the plays they're preparing for the game. The video comes on of all the great plays of Alabama lore and history of Alabama football. And there's a semi-intelligible voice that comes over the loudspeaker. I don't know much about losing because I ain't never been nothing but a winner. Uh, Bear Bryant and this man behind me who is drunker than a skunk I mean, he starts to worship. He says, glory, hallelujah. And I look around. I mean, I've, I'm a North Carolina Tar Heel. I know a little bit about uh, being serious about sports. But, man, this is something else. About the second quarter, Eli Manning is torching the tide. And this man has lost his religion. <laughs> he is cussing like a sailor. Once, and about that same spot in the upper deck, there was another man, and we were finding our seats, another man uh, who was also a little bit tipsy, right at the edge of the second deck, the upper tier, the upper deck. And he, and I'm standing beside him trying to locate my seat. In God's good providence, I was standing right beside him. He loses his balance. He is going over the ledge. I'm serious. I'm not, I, you know, preachers can, you know, we get a preacher's license to stretch the truth, but I'm telling you the truth. He's going over the ledge. I grab him by his belt and pull this sizable man back over the ledge and catch him from falling. And, and killing himself and probably someone down below. Now, I wish I could say uh, I, did, I was not very uh, Christianly when I began to talk to him. I was very preacherly 
when I began to talk to him. What are you doing? Get away from the ledge. You nearly killed yourself. Get out of here. Now, I don't know, uh, you know, I, I probably should have been a little bit more gospel-oriented. You know, I was breathing judgment and rather than grace and mercy. But my friends, that picture there is what our great liberator has done for you. You were falling. You were falling into a, a pit of the undiluted justice of God on your sin. You deserved, I deserved that justice. But he reached down and he rescued us and instead he jumped in. He jumped into the furnace to endure the hell that you and I should endure, to pay the penalty that you and I should have paid to rescue us and to make us his own. The second, um, the second word for help in verse 18, he's able to help those who are being tempted. I love, uh, in, in, let me just encourage you. Um, I didn't learn this because I'm some great Greek scholar. I'm this pastor and all I do is I live in an ivory tower and I read my Bible. You know what I did? I went online, a place that you can go. You don't have to know Greek, blueletterbible.org, blueletterbible.org. I'm not sure why it's blue, but blueletterbible.org, and you can look up any word. And if you look up Hebrews 2, 18, it'll give you all the Strong's concordance of, uh, of these different words. And this word for help means run to a cry, run to a cry. It means to bring aid to someone in need. So one of the things there, I just want to tell you that when you find yourself at a moment of weakness, when you are facing temptation, I was telling a brother this week who has entered into some temptation and given the devil a long leash to beat him, said, you need a band of brothers. You need someone you can call. You need to have a healthy distrust of yourself. You need someone that you can call and say, hey, I'm in a moment of weakness. I need you to pray for me right now. All of us need a band of brothers. We need a brother like that that we can call upon at a moment of weakness. But before that, we cry. We cry out to the Lord. And I, just thinking of just a simple illustration of this, I remember my dad was a big country man and, and uh, a strong man. I just remember his hands and how, how strong he was and I remember once we were uh, uh, at uh, where we lived in, our, in the summertime at White Lake, North Carolina, and we heard this faint little cry off in the distance, and my four-year-old little sister had been playing on an iron gate that had come unhinged and came down on her nose. She was a pool of blood, whimpering, and, and I remember my dad running to that cry, grabbing up this little girl, and bringing her, putting her in the tub, and wiping, getting the blood off, and taking her to the hospital to get her nose situated. This is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who responds to your cry. In a moment of weakness, in a moment of temptation, he, he, he comes to our aid. So the recipients of his help are the sons of Abraham. And uh, let me uh, just, uh, let, me, let me tell you... Uh, Sometimes what I do, uh, just to encourage my heart, uh, there's a lot of junk on YouTube, but
But if, if you want to, to hear something to bless your soul, the image here of, of the Lord's help is taking our hand. He takes our hand in our time of need, our time of temptation. And so I want to just encourage you with the old spiritual by Mahalia Jackson. I mean, that woman could sing. And there's nothing more beautiful and precious than precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on, help me stand. I am weak, I am tired, I am worn. Precious Lord, take my hand. And if I had Tim Johnson here this morning, I would get him to sing a song that he and I, we love to sing, and we'll break into it occasionally here at church. Time is filled with swift transition. Naught on earth can stand. you got to build your hopes on things eternal. You've got to hold to God's unchanging hand. God's unchanging hand is none other than the nail-scarred hands of your beloved Savior. Your name, according to Isaiah 48, is engraved on the palm of His hands. And today... Whether you sense him or not, underneath you are the everlasting arms, the sure hands of a loving and faithful Savior. So what's the outcome? What's the outcome of the Lord's help for you? First of all, for Jesus, we don't have a whole lot of time to really address this, but in verse 17, the incarnation basically has a a result in Jesus' life. He becomes a merciful and faithful high priest in making propitiation for our sins. So uh, for Jesus, he becomes a, a, a merciful and faithful high priest. And for us, he removes God's wrath from us. This is what the word propitiation means. It means... Uh, uh, t- for God to be merciful to the sinner. Luke 18, 14 is a great scripture here. It's the same word propitiation. Me- it means to satisfy by sacrifice. To be propitiated. The prayer of the, of the publican in that temple that day was, God, be propitiated. Be merciful to me. Now, I'm not a sinner. I am the sinner. And so this is what... Uh, the removal of God's wrath by a sacrifice. God in His love set His affection upon you and He sent Jesus to bear the, the wrath of God. And I can tell you today in the church, there's a, it, there's a stench in the nostrils of the evangelical church in America today talking about the wrath of God. In fact, uh, if you've heard the song In Christ Along by Keith and Kirsten Getty, that a lot of the hymnals of the liberal churches wanted to remove that on that cross, the wrath of God was satisfied. There's something in the, in the heart of natural man that resists that our sin arouses the wrath of God. And one of the things that ought to do for us today, Lord, increase in me a greater hatred a greater hatred of the cancer that is eating the insides out of the people that you love. Give me a greater hatred for the cancer of sin. We need help. We need the removal of God's wrath. And in his love, he sent Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice to remove the wrath of God through sacrifice. And we need to be rescued. B to be 
We need to be rescued from temptation. Now, let me just close with this. You know, as you read a passage like this, Jesus Christ is able to help those who are being tempted because he suffered while he was tempted. I want just to encourage you with this, is don't so much fix your attention on what you need to do to resist temptation. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12. We need to focus again on all that he endured, the costly love of Jesus Christ, that he was willing to humiliate himself, become a man, live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death on the cross, to bear the undiluted justice of God on us. He bore it all on Calvary's cross. He was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. We would always have the presence of the Lord with us in our time of trial and in our time of temptation. Well, just, um, just a couple of thoughts here to conclude with. According to Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 18, we have a real, we have a real and mighty enemy in the devil. And he is seeking today to work you woe. He wants to keep you bound up in a spirit of fear. But you know, according to 2 Timothy 1.7, that God has not given you a spirit of fear. He's given you a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. And you need to know today that even the very best of Christians face times of intense temptation. And temptation is not wrong. Entering into temptation is where the problem becomes. We, we face temptation with prayer and with the word just like Jesus did in the wilderness. Number two, we have an all-powerful, an all-sufficient, all-powerful, sympathizing Savior who promises to save and help us. Friends, these temptations can, can do great spiritual harm to us, but Jesus Christ stands ready to help. When we cry out, He's ready to respond to our cry. Would you call out to Him today? And if you don't know what to pray, can I give you the prayer of Martin Luther? I love this simple prayer. When I don't know what to pray, this is what I pray. Save me, Lord. Save me, Lord, for I am yours. Save me, Lord, for I am yours. And I like this. This is a beautiful phrase. And I've kind of taken it sort of as a mantra, and I commend it to you. This is from uh, the old radio preacher, Steve Brown. What is the objective here? Why has Amen Bible Study, some of you have been here from the very beginning, why, have, why for over 20 years have men gathered here in this place to give the time and attention to the study of God's Word? And here it is. To get you home to glory with faithfulness to Jesus Christ as your crowning achievement. This is the objective, the crowning achievement, the legacy that you can leave those who are coming behind you is faithfulness to Jesus Christ as your crowning achievement. And today we start by acknowledging the ways that we are faithless, the ways that we struggle to hold on to God's promises. And we come again and say, Lord Jesus, you are the perfectly faithful one. Come to me, help me in my time of trial and tribulation and help me to be found faithful.
I may be walking at the end of the race, but help me to finish my race with faithfulness to Jesus Christ as my crowning achievement. If the writer to the Hebrews could be here and talk to us personally, he would say it is worth every effort, every, every intention that you have to follow Jesus Christ faithfully. Today, the gospel of Jesus reminds you that there is courage for the fearful and there is help for the tempted and the tried. He stands ready and willing to help you. Would you call out to him today? And it is, it is not wrong. I've been doing it ever since 1972, calling out, Lord, save me. Lord, help me. For I am yours.